Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we get together every week and discuss interesting stuff that you can apply to yourselves, your business, your life within the business of agriculture. Jared McDaniel was with me a few weeks back, and we discussed his operation in western Oklahoma, the panhandle of Oklahoma. He's a smart guy. He's got an interesting operation. He's got a good perspective. He also hosts a podcast called Ag Uncensored. He's such a good guest. I decided he should come back for a second visit because we have so much to say. I like guests with opinions that also have information to back it up with, and he has all of those things. He's from Texoma, Oklahoma, which is just across the street from Texoma, Texas. It's a border town. Of course, <laughs> that part of Oklahoma is only about five miles wide, so it's not hard to have a border town right there because they're basically all on the border. Uh, Jared McDaniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it because uh, you had a lot to say last time. I decided we had a whole bunch of topics. We work on creating an outline of topics to get through, and we didn't even get through a bunch of them. So I said, why not just do this some more in depth? Uh, for those that missed the last time you were on a few episodes back, tell us a little bit about your operation. All right. Well, we farm and ranch out here in the Oklahoma Panhandle, uh, just north of Amarillo, about 100 miles. As, as That's a, probably a better landmark than our Western Oklahoma, Oklahoma Panhandle. Um, we cow-calf operation, raise corn, wheat, uh, hay for cattle, you know, kind of all, all together holistically managed type thing where we, we run it all in, as one big operation. And uh, so far, we're still in business. The homesteaded in 1906. So I guess that I'm, I'm, that was my great-grandfather. So I don't know however long that back that was. We're here's still here. Here's something, Jared, that a lot of people that are listening, because I have listeners you know, all over. I've worked in five provinces. I do speaking engagements in all the states have, have hired me. So it's a neat thing. So we've got folks that are, you know, turf, turf grass producers in Florida, and we've got, uh, you know, uh, cheese, cheese processors in Washington State. So we've got a little bit of everything. Oklahoma, where you are, very, very dry. As you said in the last time we recorded, this is where the think of the think of the Dust Bowl. That's where it all happened out there, where you guys all come together. Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, where all that stuff comes together. Also, pretty rural still, uh, pretty wide open out there. If I'm not yep. mistaken, I live half the year in Arizona, which is the 48th state. Wasn't Oklahoma like about there, 46, 47th? It was a long time before your part of the world was settled, like you said, 1906. Yes. In fact, even, even more so in the panhandle, I think it was because somebody who drew the map actually drew the map wrong. And that's how it technically got its name. No man's land is that they, they had like a 60 mile swath that none of the States really claimed because it wasn't on a map. And so it was kind of a little place people went and hung out and outlaws. I mean, to the County to the West of me is Cimarron County. And I don't, it's probably bigger than Rhode Island, but I think there's only 3000 people there. I don't know. I mean, my town is, my town is about a thousand, you know, we're, we're a small rural community, you know, kind of, kind of a, a throwback to imagine normal Norman Rockwell painting, but all the buildings downtown are empty. So something like that. And that's a sad situation that uh, people listen to this podcast, you know, they work in the grain elevator in a town that's got a grain elevator, a post office, a tavern, and probably a church. And yeah. some of them might have a dollar general. And we and, hope and, so. and the tavern might double as the church, depending on how religious that community actually is. See, I've never done a paid speaking engagement in <laughs> of Oklahoma, so I hope to get there. And if I have to do my speaking engagement in the church and the tavern, just answer me this. Can you get Coors Banquet, cold Coors Banquet there in, in uh, Texoma? 
Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And Oklahoma actually just kind of got rid of some of their blue laws. So we no longer have 3.2 beer, which is, I know that doesn't seem like much to some, but you know, you celebrate the small victories in life. That sounds like a pretty big deal to me because I like cold beer. And if I had to drink 3-2 beer, I'd be along, I'd be peeing a lot. All you right. <laughs> Let's talk, Jared McDaniel, about what it is that happens uh, uh, out here in the beef industry. We're going to talk about the economics. We're going to talk about the beef industry since you're a 600 cow calf producer. And then we're also going to talk about the economics of agriculture in general. So if you're a listener and you're saying, Damien, what are we getting into today? Well, we're going to get into today the agriculture business, the economics of it, the real economics of it, because uh, Mr. McDaniel is, a, is an ag econ animal science guy. I'm an ag econ guy myself, and we're going to tell you our perspective. He's going to talk a little bit about his business, but we're going to start with the beef thing. You've got 600 mama cows. You've got the calves. You raise the calves. You take them up. You market them. We discussed this in our last uh, visit together, but Beef is kind of a screwy business. I say it's the most dysfunctional of all the production. Those cowboy hat wearing cowboy beef types cannot get along over anything. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association erupts into near fisticuffs every time they get together over proposed changes to the checkoff or to uh, what's going to happen in the industry. Am I right? Oh, it's... <laughs> It It is like a dysfunctional family reunion. I mean, and I don't know what the solution is because in order to to go out and raise cattle, you've got to have a little bit of an ego, a little bit of swagger, a little bit of an independent streak. And people that don't play well with others tend to not get along when you get in big groups. And, you know, you've just got so many different ideals and you've got some, it, it's such a wide area geographically you know, a guy who's producing cattle where I'm at has a completely different outlook than somebody who's in Kentucky or Virginia or Tennessee, you know, places where there's trees that, you know, there's just so many different things that are different within the region. Did you hear that dear listener? He just said, People who work where there are trees. That's right. So if you. (laughs) (laughs) For those that don't know, there are no trees out here. Except for if you see trees, that's where somebody tried to homestead. And if the house isn't there, they didn't survive. So. But no, there's there there are places that you know it's it's just a completely different crazy cross culture, and I think when you try to put that into perspective of you know hogs have vertical integration that you know they kind of kicked all ever that's just the nature of the business it went to that chickens it's the same way I don't know that cattle ever get there it'd probably end up being some kind of quasi horizontal slash vertical integration where partnerships agreements you know people will i mean it kind of does that now with with capture supply of cattle going to packers i mean there's uh, just there's already little things like that we try to always bear in mind jared that some folks listening maybe don't fully understand different nuances you know there might be somebody that's again in the turf grass business what are you talking about vertical integration what's happened it happened with poultry first and mm-hmm. then it moved into pork in the 90s because the 90s the pork industry melted down and whether that was packer driven or marketplace driven or supply driven, there's going to be different arguments about that. But we had people that were trying to sell pigs and they were getting about seven cents a pound. And so your cost of production is 50 cents or 47 cents and you're getting seven cents. After a year and a half of that, it washed out everybody, uh, not everybody, it washed out a tremendous amount of uh, pork. So what happens now is poultry and pork are vertically integrated. Tell the listener what that means. Uh, that just means that one company will own the animal from conception to birth to feeding to finishing and a lot in a lot of cases they'll actually own the packing house too yeah, and so, so a the lot producer, of the, the producer the producer ends up being that that in company's hired man 
Yeah, the farm contract grower. So like around the corner from me where I am in Indiana, there are contract <laughs> hog barns. And what that means is, uh, especially a younger person then gets a loan through the USDA or backed by the USDA and they build this building and then they never actually own the pigs. They just take care of them. They get the manure, they make sure they're fed and the vertical integrator uh, supplies them. And so what they're getting is the person gets an income, the farmer gets an income, but they uh, also don't have the risk. Yep. And, and in, in the cattle industry right now, it still is in the stages where everybody owns the cattle themselves. And then, then eventually that animal gets transferred down the line to other people. So it's still broke up into different segments. So it hasn't all been kind of lined up and stacked on top of each other by the same owner. Is it going to happen? I don't think so. I think the landmass is too big. I think you'll just end up with associations or partnerships. I think you'll, you know, you'll get into a branded segment. I think it will become more fragmented, but fragmented in a way that it's like little fingers kind of all sticking out. And, you know, instead of little hairs, maybe it'll be fingers where it's, it's, it's thicker veins going into the production stream, you know, but, but everybody will kind of have to, you know, stay in their lane as they like to like to say, so the kids the, like to say now. The people, yeah, stay in your lane. The people in the beef don't get along. Uh, they seem to be dysfunctional. They fight. And then part of it, they fight over what the checkoff dollars go for. And for someone that's not listening, checkoff is a program. I think there's like 27 different things that are funded through the checkoff. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, there's, the, the money gets collected every time an animal is sold, a dollar gets put back. And, and, and if that same animal gets sold 10 times, then that one animal generates $10 of, of quote, revenue that then goes for the promotion in air quotes of, of beef. And I, I mean, I'm like everybody else. I've got my categorical opinions and and stuff about should the producers be the one, you know, the people who raise the animals, should they be the only one funding this thing? I mean, why not take the meat equivalent of like when, when 600 pounds of carcass goes across the scale, the equivalent of one animal head, Hey, pay a dollar there too. Let's let everybody in the industry contribute and let's get some serious funds. And, I mean, it, it's just like any organization. If you're in it, if you're a guy that's probably running these promotional deals, it's great. And I don't think they're bad people. If you're on the outside, it's real easy to criticize and say how much better it could be if you were the one running it. Right. So, you know, it's, 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 it's the same problem that's faced with school boards. You see it on, you know, any kind of a, a representation type um, business. People who aren't doing it are pissed at the ones that are saying that they can, you know, it's kind of like, quarterback you know the the armchair quarterback he's on he can always do it better than than that lazy ass coach that's out there but can he i don't know you know uh probably not and, and it's been my experience remember i i uh i i get together and discuss football with people once in a while and uh when i have a lot of folks that have never put on the pads or the helmet telling me that i don't know what i'm talking about i say well i actually put on the hat the helmet the pads so maybe <laughs> i know more about this thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. hey let's talk about this thing is uh since you're a beef person I see the future of beef working out like this. I see there will be uh, more commodity uh, buy-in, but then again, Cargill and Tyson, they're huge meat companies. They're getting into lab meat. So are they going to be commodity producers? Are they going to be lab meat producers? And before we even get into that, I'm going to say this. If beef consumption has leveled off or continues to drop a little bit, where does it ultimately go? So does it go to lab meat? Jared McDaniel, as a beef man in Oklahoma. I, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna full flex my bias on this subject. I do not see lab meat being something that comes in and makes a huge splash. For here's the here's my logic. I, I think you you've got 
you've got you've got to scale that production up. Right now, it's not feasible. They're you know they're building it in a test tube in a lab. Okay, you've got to build this. You've got to scale this production of this quote lab meat. So eventually, in order to make any kind of serious dent into the beef in business, into the actual meat industry, you're talking huge plants that are size of slaughterhouses. Well, let's think about the reality. Why are you going to go get all these ingredients, try to put them together to raise this meat when you can do it a hell of a lot cheaper and more efficient and better with the animal that you're trying to imitate? Like it just doesn't, it doesn't flow in my mind how you're going to put up a giant factory so you can raise something in a Petri dish that you can already raise more efficiently in the, in the animal protein world. Okay. That's one reason. Another reason Wait, is there's let's, do this, let's do this one at a time. Can you, okay. come, you remember what your second one is? I'll give you the reasons to answer number one. And okay. I, I believe that lab meat will be a real thing. I think it's going to take a while because right now an industry that struggles with a consumer that calls anything that they deem to be uh, uh, not what they're mental images they call it factory food industrial mm -hmm. agriculture so what the hell could be more factory and industrial than <laughs> a guy in a lab coat with his three assistants coming up with this idea over a petri dish and then yeah. uh, they go over they squeeze some uh, some uh, some solution out of a test tube and the next thing you know they've got lab raised petri dish protein so i yeah. say that there will be a thing called lab meat it won't be called lab meat. It'll be called lab protein or Petri protein or whatever you want to call it. But the thing is, it's going to take a while because right now we have a consumer base that craves natural. And, exactly. Uh, and we'll, right at the same time, Pringles sales or cereal sales, processed food sales are declining because of the processed part of processed foods. How the hell are we going to convince the consumer? But okay, here's why it and, will happen. Here's why it will happen. All right. Environmentalism. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's, let's put this in perspective right now. You can get a, a fake meat thing. You can get a soy burger. You can get a veggie burger. You can get all these, you can get a, you can get what they're trying to produce right now. Is that crap flying off the shelves? Is it, do you have anybody that's like, you know what? I'm, I'm so against the, the environment impact of animals. They can go out, they can make that consumer choice right now. They're not making it. The only reason why people think that they want lab meat and then it's endorsed by the, by the kind of the, the coast culture, in my opinion, is because it's new. It's, it's, it's idealistic. There's an ideology. There's a feeling of how great would this be if we could make the meat and they didn't have to put these animals in a feedlot. It's all touchy-feely, just BS. Because I at the agree. end of the day, at the end of the day they, they have the alternative right now. They don't buy it. And what do you think happens to this exclusive club who then love, you know, lab grown meat. What do you think happens when everybody can get it? When you, when any Joe Schmo off the street can get lab meat, how exclusive is that? Well, sure. It's there's like, no, there's no exclusive. Yeah, yeah. There's Harris, no, there's no, there's nothing fancy about it. If, if everybody can get it. Well, sure. Harrison Ford, uh, 10 years ago, drove a Toyota Prius and it was almost like proving I'm cool by driving a not cool car to prove that I love the earth. It's all <laughs> yes. a bunch of hoopla and horse shit, but it made, but he doesn't him, still drive one. No, of course not. It was all for the photo ops when it first came out. <laughs> yes. So the point is when everybody can have a Toyota Prius, uh, the trendy crowd doesn't any longer want to talk. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is they're, they're, they go so far as to make this fake meat in the actual shape of a steak. I mean, you can't fly anymore in the face of logic than 
I want to make something that looks exactly like came like it came out of an animal so I can say this didn't come from an animal. It just it doesn't stand a reason. It doesn't pass the litmus test of this will actually happen. Now and, this my dear friend people, Jared McDaniel, this my dear friend Jared McDaniel is where I get to prove why Purdue still outscores Oklahoma State. <laughs> okay. I am, going, I am going to tell you the reasons why. I remember an Alamo Bowl. I think that well Purdue might have won that one. I'll have to go back and check I, before I talk to crap about it. I'll tell you why they they actually don't outscore them in football. But anyway, mm. um, here's what I am going to tell you. Uh, I agree. However, if it's all about flying in the face of logic, none of this stuff would happen because it's never about logic, nor is it about facts, nor is it about science. It is about feelings. The Prius is about feelings. Lab meat is about feelings. Environmentalism is an emotional movement. So the but, but they've got to, eventually there's got to be something grounded in reality because emotions no. won't feed a starving whatever. Oh, you you can't like, live on emotion. Sure. Period. You're talking like a producer, but you know what? Our consumers large by and large have never been, have never even been threatened with not being fed. So they don't, they're, they're, you're talking two different languages. You might as well go and talk to Swahili with these people because they I don't know. understand science, nor do they really understand need. So the nor other, do they care. And that's asked, all right. You asked a you question, know? Mr. Nick McDaniel, you said, why would we fashion a, a Petri dish protein to make it look like a steak? Well, there's tofu hot dogs. There are soy burgers. Uh, you know, why not just make it look like a candle? or a calculator. Uh, they may look like a burger because obviously there was the human uh, connection to I've eaten a burger before. I have eaten a hot dog. I'll make a tofu hot dog. Oh, I have eaten a steak before. So if this looks like a steak, so that's why it's going to happen. It will be because of environmentalism. And then the other argument that you were going to go with was about why it's not more adopted. It's a bit new. It's a bit new. And it also doesn't make anyone's life easier. Uber got adopted quickly because it made your life easier. Hey, I need a ride. I'm in a big city. Yeah. Boom. And also made it so somebody could make money on a flexible basis pretty darn easily. I signed up to be an Uber driver and I, well, I am one. So you think maybe if, if everybody starts 3D printing lab meat in their house, like it, you, you can just be like, hey, go over to Bob's and get some of his 3D lab meat. If I mean, it it's not going to be called lab meat, but it would be something. If everybody had a, a meat printer in their, in their house. If it makes one's life easier, uh, then it'll happen. But right now, the biggest selling point will be the environmentalism because the angle against all meat is that uh, cow farts are killing us. And here's the reason I think it will catch on. The millennials and actually the post-millennials, the Gen Z or whatever you want to call them, are so driven. First off, if you read the stuff on, uh, on various outlets I've been seeing, they are the first group of Americans that truly believes in a majority stance that socialism is a positive thing. They've never been educated about history, and they're very, mm -hmm. very swayed by environmental causes. So you've got a group of people that believe that greed or capitalism is bad. What do, what do they always do to demonstrate the fat, rich capitalist? He's smoking a big cigar, he's drinking champagne, and what's he eating? Steak, right? Mm. So You think it's guilt by association that, that this is... This, they're, you're going to throw the baby with the bathwater out and beef's just caught in the crossfire. And, and beef, beef will get caught a little bit and it'll be the environmental movement. Also, what's happening right now, if you look around and you're pretty active on social media, I know you are because I see you there. Take a look mm -hmm. around some stuff that you disagree with. In other words, stay away from the ag people for a while. And oh, yeah. And here's why you got to do that. So you can see what the other part of the world is thinking. Well, I call those people the, the batshit crazy nut ones. But you Yeah, know. well, what do they call it now? <laughs> the Green New Deal. Have you seen this? The oh, God. Okay, yeah. so just put in hashtag Green New Deal. Now, for those of you that know history, and 
again, most of these. Mm-hmm. Most yeah, the, the old FDR, WPAs, all that stuff. There you go. The New Deal was all about uh, a new deal for America. We're going, and it was a, it was a vast, huge socialistic. Yeah. We, we still have we still have flood control dams in the middle of the desert because of that jackass policy. So that, sure. I mean, there's a little bit of history in that. And here's but history and facts don't matter. Feelings uh, matter. So FDR yeah. made America feel good by by growing the size of the government by quadruple times, giving people a bunch of non essential jobs to go out and build flood control dams in the middle of the desert. And uh, but but you've also got to take into account the pendulum factor. I mean, you you can't deny somebody like a crazy guy like Trump. He basically walked into the White House by by biting his thumb and flipping his nose at all the people who didn't like him. So, well, who's to say that there's not going to be a Trump be a Trump beef style resurgence of people that are so against this crazy ideology that they're just like, you know what? I'm going to eat beef to prove that I am not like them. Which brings me <laughs> to point number seven. You, okay. <laughs> you and I are somewhat in agreement on this. First off, I'm going to eat a cheeseburger that's from a steer. So are mm-hmm. you. I'm not going away. I don't plan on dying anytime soon. Also, you're dead on right. I didn't say lab meat replaces beef. I said lab meat is coming. It will be in a more substantial form. It will truly steal pounds from conventional meat uh, Mm -hmm. or what we think of as conventional meat, even if it's organic or whatever, in another 10 to 20 years. It's going to take a little slower time, but I think it's going to be environmentalism that moves it. It may be. It may be. But, I mean... Those people, it's it's kind of like a bad relationship. They they had one. They've got one foot out the door as it is. So I mean, do you think that they were so, going to spontaneously just jump in there and start like consuming massive amounts of, of burgers before? I mean, no. you, you're you're losing the people who were going to be gone anyway. You're losing the people that were going to eat kale or whatever. But yeah. then, but remember, if their propaganda and the environmental argument, if it appeals as much as I think it does to the 21 year old today. 20 years from now, they will fall for this whole thing of meatless Monday and, and steakless Saturday. But, and, well, but what if, the, okay, if you say that's moving more mainstream. And as you know, the counterculture and the, and the cool stuff usually comes in, in retrospect or in, in after that movement has established and became, I mean, look at hipsters. I mean, they want to go as far away from mainstream as possible. So you're always going to have that element of, Hey, it's cool to go have a, a real steak because you're not the poser who's eating all this, you know, quote unquote, fancy food. I mean, there's there's always going to be that counterculture that is going to embrace and almost idol, you know, create their own ideologue of of here we're eating meat because we're not like those people. You just used the word ideologue on a business of agriculture podcast. I hope that people listening has gave you a little kudo for that and said, hey, you know what? We're not out here talking about soybean prices and soil, <laughs> and soil, and soil moisture. By God, we're talking about real issues. Here's what I would also say, because you've got a point there, Jared. I just read an article about two weeks ago that uh, hunting is still slowly dying. I go hunting. I own several firearms. I, I've shot deer, rabbits, ducks, geese, squirrels, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the people who are now getting into hunting are a bit of that hipster crowd. They're suburban uh, urban, urban kids that decided that there are, they want to be nature-ish and they want to know where their food comes from. And so the hunting mm-hmm. crowd said, you know what, if that's true, we'll show you. Versus yeah. you want to go, uh, you know, sign protests at, uh, you know, the, the park and bang on your bongo drum. So there could be, you know, and, and that's something I think we have to be very careful about is a lot of these kids that are coming up and we, and we kind of, you know, 
and I, I don't mean to say we look down our nose at them, but we kind of do in a way like how, how dumb are they to think that way? They're just kids that grew up in, in their environment. I mean, that's, they, they followed the path of just like Waterwood. They, they went exactly where they were allowed to go. I mean, and it's, it's some instances, it's not necessarily their fault that they believe what they do. It's just, that was their circumstance and that was their, their belief sprung forth from their environment. I, I don't disagree with you. And I point out all the time that we in the business of agriculture sometimes talk too much in our vernacular and not enough in theirs. And uh, yeah, we, we can't. I use- think we need to all, we need to struggle to be more woke. As we get, as we move forward, <laughs> what we really need to do is realize that they completely outnumber us. And while we might think that some of their uh, the consumers' uh, perceptions are asinine, there's going to be a lot of the realization that well, they have the money, they have the moats, and and we work for them. I still think that there's room for a William Wallace to come charging over the horizon and say, "Come on, come with me. I can show you a better way than what you what you're being fed right now." That might I think, be your. That might be your answer to repopulating or populating the first time Western Oklahoma, that county to your west that's size of Rhode Island that only has 3,000 people in it. Maybe mm-hmm. you can just create a big commune for post-millennials <laughs> that wants to be closer to the land. You bring them out there. You joke about that, but my I have brought this up before on some of my own podcasts. What, what is – okay – the reason why people moved to cities was originally because everybody had to work in a building. You had to be there. You had to, you know, there was, there was a, there was a practical reason why cities exist. That reason has all but gone away with telecommuting, with, with Amazon prime that will deliver anywhere. (laughs) I say that jokingly, but seriously, there's, you can get anything at all where I live and I can be connected as anybody as that sits in a high tower, a high rise tower in Chicago. There's the necessity or the need other than just to see other humans doesn't exist anymore you could very well see a mass migration back out into rural america where there's clean air clean water not many people i mean the very thing that everybody screams that they want is readily available and absolutely dirt cheap so why wouldn't we see a natural mass migration back out you know I'll answer you why. First off, and you're right, also, it's cheaper. So if we're really concerned about the young people right now that can't afford a home, you're going to say, well, if you can't afford a home, why don't you figure out a way to work off the grid or offline, so so to speak, uh, work remotely. Telecommute. And by golly, you can live in in Guyman, Oklahoma. But there's a couple of reasons. There's absolutely a limiting social uh, interaction or everybody interacts on their phone. How many people actually go and, and like you go to, go to a football game, a, a professional battle, go to some sports event where you think, Oh, everybody's hanging out, high-fiving. Everybody's looking at their phone there. Everybody's social structure is, is all through the little screen. Yeah. That's just, that's, and I don't see that changing unless people just finally pulled a plug disconnect and what are they going to do go to their dog park and and talk to their neighbor like that that went out the window 10 years ago i'm all for it i live remember i live half the year in a small town now here's a couple things uh there's a couple things though that i must admit i enjoy about my winter time in arizona first off it's winter time in arizona versus winter time in northern indiana <laughs> yeah uh you know what else in huntington indiana where i live on my farm uh i can't get sushi uh, at winter time, when I, summertime, when I'm at the farm, uh, it is quiet. Uh, but you can get sushi. You just have to learn to make it yourself. There you go. I the more self, there's going to be a whole self-reliant angle that's going to come into this. I mean, think how crafty someone could be. Like, I'm going to go live off the grid and have put. They can throw a solar panel, a little windmill. It'll be just like paradise. It'll be like when everything was homesteaded. There'll be everybody 140 acres and a mule, and there you go. 
Yeah, I like the idea of it, to be honest. And you're right. Maybe I should just learn how to start making my own sushi. And, and I more, uh, <laughs> now, if you don't die from food poisoning, you'll be pretty proud of yourself. Uh, actually, we, you and I are pretty, I'm, I'm closer to self-sufficient anyway. And I, I actually, uh, I, could, I could do exactly what you're talking about. I can hang out at my farm. I'm self-employed. If I don't get on an airplane to go and deliver a speaking engagement, I may not leave my property for like two and a half days because I wake up, do work, and and that's it. Uh, go for exercise yeah. with my dog around the property, and then so I, how how long before people realize that you have this luxury lifestyle and that they can have it too with just a little adjustment to the to their mindset? I mean, because yeah, it's a pretty sweet gig you got going on. Sure, it is. They would probably need to be self employed, and uh-huh. uh, that and br- that brings up a whole new set of discipline and and whatnot that a lot of folks don't have. But I agree with you. Let's talk about business. Speaking of business. Besides, mm-hmm. the, besides the lovely life I have, let's talk about the lovely life you have. What are you doing in your farming operation moving forward? So we talked a lot about beef. What are you going to do differently in anticipation of everything we've just discussed uh, about whether it's petri dish protein or living out there in a high life in, in Texoma, Oklahoma? What is it? I, going to do I'm still time? just strive to scale the cattle operation. You know, it's it's a numbers game to me. You know, I... I, I the romantic side of getting out in a blizzard and, and, and picking up a calf. I've done it. I've got, I've, I've got the t-shirt. I've got the experience. You know, I don't, I don't need to go be miserable to make sure that I, I have a validated ranching career. I've okay, already so done that. Does, does that mean you have someone else out there that does it? No, I still do it. I still do it, but I'm not, I've, I'm going to try to tailor my operation to be as efficient and, and, there's no point in creating extra work just for the sake of having extra work. I see this all the time. People are like, Oh, we have to go out and we have to, we have to do it this way because that's traditional. And that's that. No, there's, there's easier ways to do it. And you do it the easy way because that's, you know, efficient and you don't have to kill yourself. I don't have to, I don't have to get in there and try to get ran over by cattle. You know, what's really interesting to say that Jared, I point out, I've got a friend that's a hard worker and he doesn't always uh, work smartly. He works very hard. And mm-hmm. I said to mom, I said, Could somebody please tell some of these people that they don't give away a ribbon or a trophy for saying I did it. I did it the hardest way. I mean, nope. there's a, there is a reality to that. I, oh, I, hard. I had that experience when I was young. I, yeah. I work plenty hard, but I work smart whenever I can. You exactly. That's it. so. That would be what you know. Cattle operation. Just try to make it just work smarter and smarter. Do do get more production with less work. Uh, from the farming side, I I'm the fact I'm blessed out here with with a declining aquifer. I've kind of last couple of years went through down the low population corn uh, rabbit hole. So I'm trying to figure out how to raise 200 bushel corn with 15,000 plants. I've done it before. I'm going to continue to to fine tune that. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever turn the industry on its head, but if I can come out here and prove that I can in a semi-arid climate that I can produce 150 bushel corn consistently with limited, you know, inputs with water being my most, most limiting factor, you know, that I'm going to continue to chase that. Uh, ultimately I'm probably going to be more and more cattle operation just because I can grow silage, I can grow feed and it, and you know, I will not have the capacity to continue to grow corn at the level I do long term. But I'm using the resources I have now to develop that transition to a better, to a better goal. I mean, and, and I, it's hard for me to sit here and say, this is where I'm going. This is point A and point B is over here because the entire journey, I'm going to learn things that I might end up in point F. You know, I'm going to be so far off, the, off where I thought I was going to go that it's kind of pointless to actually sit there and, and stake the flag and this is where I'm going come hell or high water. I mean, I didn't think... Two years ago, I didn't think I'd be doing a podcast that, that's that's getting traction. I mean, if if that continues to grow, I mean, there's the reality there. If if 
if I do, if I do better in the ag media world than I do in the ag farming world, well, maybe I'm not going to go lease more ground. Maybe I'm not going to expand that operation. Maybe the kids are getting old enough. They want to come back and farm so I can go do something else. I mean, I don't think, I don't just don't think that man, everybody's world is so wide open. You know, everybody's blessed to, to get up and do whatever the hell they want to every day. So, you know, you can go any direction with anything you want to do. Those are best parting words of wisdom I could ask for. I was going to say, do you got a parting thought? And by golly, you just gave it to us. Jared McDaniel has been my guest. This is episode two with Jared. He's uh, got his own podcast. It's called Ag Uncensored. You can find him on Twitter at Jared McDaniel. That's J-E-R-O-D McDaniel, like you might imagine, Nick. Dan Eel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the best way to do it. Uh, and so uh, you can also find him through me. And until then, Mr. McDaniel, thanks for being on here. I can't wait till I come and do a speaking engagement in your part of the world so we can actually. You bet. And, and we're going to get you on Ag Uncensored one of these days. And we're going to sit down and, and two hours later, you're going to be like, my head hurts. Oh, I don't think my head will hurt. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, we'll be ready for that course banquet we talked about. Oh, yes. And that that's probably something I'm doing wrong, but we kind of actively encourage drinking on our show. So there's always that. Uh, I, that's fantastic. Well, we don't do that here, but we're going to start. <laughs> Not yet. Back. All right. Hey, thanks a lot for joining us here, uh, Jared. And thank you, dear listener, for being a part of the business of agriculture. Thanks for having me on. Bet. Till next time.